0: Welcome to A Breath of Fresh Earth, taking the commitment to a clean environment to the next level. Your host, Rick Friedman, will crown the climate hero and villain of the week, along with discussing worldwide environmental issues, showcasing new products designed with the longevity of our planet in mind, and putting the spotlight on the individuals making a big impact in helping the climate and pollution crisis through social media. Now, your host, Rick Friedman.
1: What is deforestation? Deforestation is the clearing, destroying, or removal of trees through deliberate, natural, or accidental means. It occurs in any area densely populated by trees and other plant life, but most of it is happening in the Amazon rainforest. I remember going to the Cleveland Zoo and seeing the display showing deforestation. There was the sound of buzz saws zipping through trees. Above it, there was the running total of acreage lost. It's like a horrible scoreboard of forests gone forever. Part of the problem is that we're converting more land to agriculture than ever before. There's more people on the planet. They need to eat. Once a forest has lost to agriculture, it's usually gone forever, along with the plants and animals that once lived there. Millions of acres of forest are destroyed by fire. Fire is often used as a way to clear land for planting crops. Do you remember Dr. Seuss's book, The Lorax? Think about the brown barbalutes and the swomy swams and the humming fish that fled the forest for two reasons. One, they had to get away from the pollution. Dr. Seuss called the pollution gluppity-glup and schloppity-schlop. And two, trees were gone. There was nowhere for all the animals to live, and their food was gone. The trees of the rainforest provide shelter for some species, and the canopy regulates temperature. The lack of trees allows a greater amount of greenhouse gases to escape into the atmosphere. Healthy forests absorb carbon dioxide. Is anyone doing anything about it? One is the New York Declaration of Forests global platform. Launched at the Climate Summit at the UN in 2014, the declaration is endorsed by 200 companies and 50 governments. The declaration includes a set of goals to halve deforestation by 2020 and stopping it by 2030. You can go online to the New York Declaration on Forests for a complete list of the goals they set up back in 2014. Not too long ago, they released the five-year summary. It's not very encouraging. There is little evidence that the goals are on track, and achieving the 2020 targets is likely impossible. Well, now that we're halfway through 2020, I'm telling you it hasn't happened. Deforestation has continued at an unsustainable pace. The political will to restore degraded land has increased, and efforts to implement restoration have been slow to gain traction. Many private and public actors have taken action to address deforestation, we'll talk about that in the next two segments, but some of them lack ambition and remain isolated. On average, an area of tree cover the size of the United Kingdom was lost every year between 2014 and 2018. The accelerated loss of irreplaceable primary forests is particularly alarming given that they serve as invaluable carbon sinks. We have a long way to go. Dr. Seuss's environmental kid book, The Lorax, was banned in 1989 at Laytonville, California, high school because it was believed to portray logging in a poor light and would turn children against the foresting industry. Members of the logging community were so upset by Dr. Seuss's book that they sponsored the publication of a book called The True Axon in an attempt to show children the need for foresting. Check this out. Reforestation is one of the best ways to combat and recover from climate change-induced disasters. Techniques for reforestation have not changed much in the last 100 years. For the most part, reforestation consists of crews working manually with shovels, a slow and tedious and expensive process. And recruiting can be difficult because of the tough nature of the work. In Episode 3, I mentioned Ken Chapman, the gentleman from Canada that holds the Guinness World Book of Records, for the most trees planted in one day by one person. His incredible mark of 15,170 planted trees smashed the previous record of 12,380 set by his twin brother, Kurt. Enter a new contestant into the realm of tree planting, and Ken Chapman has no chance in this one. There are several companies that can do in one hour what Ken Chapman did in a day. These companies load thousands of seed vessels at a time into a drone Humans not named Ken Chapman can plant two to three acres worth of trees in one day. One drone operator can direct up to 15 drones to plant 30 or 40 acres in one day. The success rate of these drone seeds are about 80% and much more effective than hiring humans to do the work. Drone seeding makes reforestation scalable. How does it work? First, the drones survey the area and make 3D maps to learn where are the best places to plant. The software tells the developers where to plant and where the drones should fire their seeds into the ground along a predetermined pattern, like a lawnmower moving up and down your backyard. To address the need not just to plant seeds successfully, but also to make sure they germinate, drone seeding companies prep their seed bombs with herbicides and fertilizer. Picture the seeds as a paintball fired from above the ground. Mother Nature adds water, and presto, the trees begin to grow from day one. The drone swarm approach to reseeding and replanting allows for a quick, scalable solution for dealing with massive reductions in plant species related to fire, drought, or the rapid takeover of invasive species. Following the Grave Creek fire near Medford, Oregon, which burned over 7,000 acres, The timber company, overseeing the reforestation effort, decided to hire a company called Drone Seed. And they immediately went to work, planting seeds right away. Another advantage to planting seeds is to avoid low-growing brush and shrubs taking hold of the area instead of majestic and carbon-absorbing trees. These are the kind of feel-good stories that make me forget about the idiot in the White House. This type of technology and other engineering and scientific achievements That are working towards preserving the planet will lead us through the challenges ahead. Look in the show notes for links to several of these innovative companies. Next on our list of reforestation superstars are also social media giants. Mark Rober and Mr. Beast teamed up and planted 20 million trees. YouTube Phenom Rober and Mr. Beast teamed up to launch. Team Trees last year, a massive campaign to plant 20 million trees. They used different strategies to accomplish their goal. Mr. Beast chose to employ the power of his legion of followers. Mark Rober used a more scientific solution, using swarms of drones. The idea started on May 24th, 2019, when a fan suggested on Reddit that Mr. Beast, whose real name is Jimmy Donaldson, Suggests should plant 20 million trees to celebrate reaching 20 million subscribers on YouTube. The idea spread across YouTube and social media. America engineer and inventor Mark Roper partnered directly with Donaldson to launch the fundraiser. Who are these guys? Well, Roper was an engineer at NASA. He spent seven years there working on the Curiosity rover at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He worked at Apple for a while and turned into a YouTube phenom, famous for his pop science and do-it-yourself gadget videos. Mr. Beast is a YouTube superstar with more than 35 million followers. The duo partnered with the Arbor Day Foundation to plant trees. You can go to hashtag teamtrees or discoverygo or teamtrees.org to learn more about their amazing accomplishments. All donations go to the Arbor Day Foundation. The Arbor Day Foundation began planting in January and hopes to end no later than 2022. The 20 million trees will take up 69 square miles of land, absorb about 1.6 million tons of carbon, and remove 116,000 tons of chemical air pollution from the atmosphere. Currently, the project has raised over $22 million. Video game giant EA donated $500,000 to help the effort. They contributed the money in the name of one of their games, which won Come on, you know it. Plants versus zombies, of course. So where do they plant all these trees? The trees will be in a variety of forests on public and private lands in areas of greatest need. Arkansas, California, Florida, Georgia, Michigan, and other places throughout the United States, plus Brazil and Kenya and India, Mozambique, Ireland, France, Australia, and many more. Congratulations to the two social media giants and their help to plant trees. Tweet, chat with us on Twitter.
0: It's time for the Climate Hero of the Week.
1: Over the years, I've hopped on Kickstarter and given money to companies using crowdfunding to get their products off the ground. John Cook's crazy uncle is one of them. I talked about him in Episode 3. Today, I'm thrilled to tell you about Alex Dvorak and her project Greenhouse, a board game where players work together to rein in climate change by employing science-supported solutions. Alex calls it a climate change card game that puts real-world solutions in the palm of your hand. In the game, players respond to different climate-related crises, such as wildfires and pandemics, or deadlocked policy debates, by playing action cards. These cards are a mix of market-ready solutions and innovative actions, all based on real science. Players could plant trees to lower greenhouse gases or support efforts to redesign communities in a way that reduces overall car use. A QR code on each card gives individuals access to more information about that topic. I'm pleased to announce they met their goal of $15,000, and I hope to see the game at my front door in December. What a great Christmas gift for the family. But you don't have to wait till Christmas to play. A PDF version of the solutions and the print-at-home version of the game should be available in July. It's not too late to support the game. The cards are brightly colored, the game looks fun and educational, and you can follow them on social media at Greenhouse Game or on Instagram at Greenhouse Game on Facebook. I love my climate heroes. Thank you. Now it's time for the Climate Villain of the Week. The Climate Villain of the Week is Oklahoma Senator James Inhofe. On February 26, 2015, Oklahoma Republican Senator Inhofe, chair of the Senate Environmental and Public Works Committee, appeared with a snowball on the Senate floor to demonstrate once and for all that climate change is a hoax. This is what he said back then. You know what this is? It's a snowball from outside. Very, very cold out. Very unseasonable. Then he tossed it to a congressional page. It happened to be very cold in the eastern United States that February but 2015 overall ranked as the hottest year ever recorded globally. That record lasted one whole year, because 2016 was even hotter. I'm going to break down my reasons for making him climate villain of the week. I went to the League of Conservation Voters website to review his record. Oh my, his score in 2019 was like John Belushi's GPA in Animal House, 0.0. Among his votes include undermining the Antiquities Act, undermining the Land and Water Conservation Fund, stopping rollbacks of carbon pollution limits for power plants, public lands package. He was only one of eight senators to vote against that bill. In 2017, he voted against the Protecting the Arctic Ridge. That amendment would remove budget reconciliation instructions that paved the way for drilling in the pristine and sacred Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. In 2016, he voted against Encouraging Energy Efficient Homes Amendment. If the vote is for clean energy, water, or air, he voted against it. Let's not forget his vote for the National Monuments Amendment, another disgraceful vote. And he voted against the Climate Change Science Amendment, which expresses the sense of Congress that climate change is real and that man-made pollution is a significant contributor to climate change. And he supported the 2013 Toxic Air Pollution from Power Plants Amendment, which sought to weaken the EPA's mercury and air toxic standards by making it easier for power plants to win an exemption from the requirements. Even back in 2004, he voted against the nuclear waste cleanup provision of a bill. In 1996, he voted against the Logging Without Laws, a rider to the 1995 Budget Rescissions Act that allows timber companies to purchase and log parcels in our natural, in our national forests without regard to federal environmental laws. I think you get the idea. He's been a disaster for the environment since he came to Washington. And in his first year in office, back in 18, back in 1987, he was on the wrong side of the Ocean Pollution Bill that pertained to the U.S.-Japan Fisheries Agreement of the Plastic Pollutions Control Act. The vote was on the adoption of a rule to bring the bill to the House floor. The bill banned the dumping of plastics by U.S. ships, including synthetic ropes and nets. How can anyone vote against that? He's so bad for the environment. He might return in a future episode so we can review his record of promoting like-minded individuals that have continued the assault on the environment. Good riddance, Mr. Enhoff. Do you ever get confused with the terms weather and climate? Here's an easy way to remember the difference. Weather is, what coat should I wear today? Climate is, what coats do you need to keep in your closet?
0: Hey,
1: can you please pass the salt? Can you guess what my connection is to Arbor Day? a man from Nebraska born in 1832 in the Fairport Harbor salt mine? In 1855, newspaper editor Julius Sterling Morton started building a modest four-room house in Nebraska City, Nebraska. He later expanded that into a 52-room White House look-alike. Morton's spacious new home sat all by itself out on a prairie, and it was hard to attract neighbors. So Morton planted trees lots of them. He proposed a holiday on which all Nebraskans would join in. The State Board of Agriculture loved the idea, and on April 10, 1872, Nebraskans planted more than one million trees. The tradition became so popular that in 1885, Nebraska made Arbor Day a legal holiday, even honoring Morton by choosing April twenty-sixth, his birthday, as the day for the holiday. Soon, the rest of the country was celebrating Morton's brainchild, and today, Our day is celebrated around the world. Morton went on to serve as Secretary of Agriculture under Grover Cleveland, and his son, Joy, founded the Morton Salt Company. Morton produces salt at eight vacuum evaporation plants, six underground mines, including the Fairport Harbor Salt Mine, which is 2,000 feet under Lake Erie, and located about 13 miles away from my office. Next, the mighty redwood tree. A Hero of the 1906 San Francisco Fire In April 1906, San Francisco awoke to a major earthquake, and soon massive fires threatened to burn down the entire city. But the city didn't go up in smoke for one reason. Redwoods. In the collection of Forest History Society can be found a somewhat different perspective on the disaster and its aftermath. The album promoted the superiority of redwood as a construction material for its fire-resistant and non-resinous qualities. The album shows the destruction from various points in the city where the progress of the fire was apparently halted in the midst of the frame redwood buildings. Hey, stick a cork in it. If the it in question is wine, absolutely. Cork is the most environmentally friendly way to seal a bottle. Aluminum and synthetics can be recycled, but that process requires a lot of energy. Harvesting cork is much greener and doesn't begin until after a cork oak tree's 25th birthday. Workmen carefully peel off the outer layers of bark using special axes, making sure not to harm the trees, so that the cork can be manually harvested again after a decade of rest. As the cork regenerates, the trees continue to play a valuable role in forests' ecosystems by helping clean the air. Help! Throw me a line! The thorny kapok. Tree may appear prickly, but it's got a soft side too. The tropical tree's seed pods are packed with a buoyant, water-resistant fiber that's just one eighth the weight of cotton. Before the advent of synthetic foams, kapok fibers were a crucial ingredient in all natural life preservers, including the ones used by GIs in World War II. The kapok tree might have saved the life of one of your relatives. On the downside. The majestic kapok tree wood is also good for making coffins. You don't look a day over 4,000. Methuselah is a 4,851-year-old giant basin bristlecone pine tree in the White Mountains of California. It's recognized as a non-clonal tree with the greatest confirmed age in the world. The tree was a seedling when the Egyptian pyramids were built, perhaps by my ancestors. Another Friedman connection to a tree. The bristletone's dense hardwood is nearly impenetrable for insects and fungi, so there's no chance of rotting. Where can you see Methuselah? You can't. Its exact location in California's Inyo National Forest is kept secret to keep vandals away. Methuselah has been placed in the forestry's equivalent of the Witness Protection Program.
0: Happy 70th birthday!
1: I've heard scientists say that doom and disaster await us unless we keep the rise in global temperatures below 2 degrees centigrade. Who's the person that said 2 degrees was the magic number to shoot for? The man is Hans Schnellenhuber, born on June 7, 1950 in West Germany. John, as he is known, is the recipient of today's birthday wishes. John has some seriously impressive honors. He's won the Blue Planet Prize, the German Environmental Prize, And in 2011, he was the first German to receive the Volvo Environmental Prize. That's the highest award in the field of environmental scientists anywhere in the world. He's been a member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change for years. And in 2007, that group won the Nobel Peace Prize. In 2004, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II appointed him commander of the Order of the British Empire. So who is this genius? John is a German atmospheric physicist-climatologist. And in 1991, he created the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. Take a look at the Potsdam Institute Twitter page when you get a chance. Back in 1995, Schnellenhuber was the one who proposed the 2 degrees centigrade guardrail for global warming, which was adopted first by the German government, then the European Union, and then following the Copenhagen Accord in 2009 has become the standard for governments worldwide. He created numerous iconic concepts, such as the analysis of tipping elements in the system. A tipping point in the climate system is a threshold that, when exceeded, can lead to changes in the state of the system. It could be rising seas, greenhouse gases, global temperatures, ice melts, or a brutal combination of all of them. Schnellenhuber was one of the 18 prominent international scientists to launch the Earth League, a global interdisciplinary alliance of leading research institutes that focused on earth system analysis and sustainability, science, including economy. That's a mouthful. That's about the coolest sounding league I've ever heard of. I've heard of the American League, the National Football League, and the Premier League. But to be part of the beginning of the Earth League, very cool. Reminds me of the Justice League. If I had to pick one league to be part of, I would pick the Justice League. Although Hans definitely qualifies as a superhero. Well, that's a wrap for episode eight. Thanks again for listening. And a special thanks to my new fans in South Korea. To them I say, and I hope I get this right, Gamsa Hamnida. Good night, Galileo.
0: Thanks for listening to A Breath of Fresh Earth with your host, Rick Friedman. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you're the first to hear new episodes. If you want to nominate someone for Climate Hero of the Week, send it to Rick at the link below. This has been A Breath of Fresh Earth. Thanks for listening. Oh,